The reading is from the epistle, the book of Exodus, continuing in the first chapter. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and delivered before the midwife even gets there. So God dwelt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Therefore, Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, come on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's much better. Thank you. This last time we took the second seven verses in Exodus past Saturday night about the oppression of the Israelite people in Egypt. Tonight's Pharaoh has more in mind than oppression. He determined to destroy the Israelites. This is an exercise in genocide. He instructs according, I read it according to the Hebrew text. He instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children at birth. Now, if, as I have suggested, this cunning pharaoh in Exodus is the equivalent, literary equivalent, to the cunning snake in Genesis, we should think of Eve when we read about these two midwives. The snake put one over on Eve. Pharaoh can't put one over on the midwives. The midwives outsmart him. Whereas the gullible Eve was no match for the ancient snake, Pharaoh is no match for these two midwives. The source of their wisdom, Exodus indicates, is that the midwives feared God. Midwives feared God. This assertion serves to Introduce the biblical principle found in Proverbs and in Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Okay. There's no fear of God. Wisdom is impossible. Okay. That should be put up as a big arch over the entranceway to every university in the country. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
Now, since they knew and feared God, there's no wonder that the midwives were able to outwit this hapless Pharaoh who would boast that he does not know the Lord. You get that in chapter 5 of Exodus. Moses comes and says, the Lord sent me. I don't know the Lord. Well, by the way, sure you don't, yeah. Thus, for the first time in Exodus, the Israelites pull a fast one on the Pharaoh, demonstrating his superior wisdom that will eventually make them victorious over the Egyptians. Now, this theme of victorious wisdom, introduced in this, the story of Shifra and Pua, serves also, in turn, to put Exodus back to the story of the wise Joseph at the end of Genesis. In fact, Joseph and Moses are portrayed very much alike in their superior wisdom over the Egyptian sages. Shifra and Pua occupy an honorable place among the wise, wise women employed by the Lord to bring deliverance to his people on so many pages of Holy Scripture. In fact, it happens kind of consistently. Why don't armies traditionally recruit women to fight? Very simple reason. They don't fight fair. And why should they? Why should they? And you'll notice that consistently in the Bible, that the women fight, they don't fight fair. And the Bible starts to revel this. There's, there's a bunch of things we hold, we don't like it very much, and we don't, we don't really approve, like deceiving people, for example. Whereas the Bible is constantly, the heroes in the Bible are always deceiving people, starting with God deceives people, particularly deceives the, the demons. But think of the, the women's saviors, Deborah and Jael. Jael is, is, is celebrated in song. Okay, remember her? The lady with the tent peg and the trusty mallet gave the guy some nice warm milk to drink. He went to sleep and she took care of the rest. Esther, Naomi and Ruth. I mean, we'll talk about wise women. Naomi, I mean, that little thing they pulled off on. Oh. Rahab of Jericho, Tamar in Genesis 38, Judith, of course. Pity the poor Protestants who don't have Judith in their Bible. Judith, the lady with an extra large purse, because when she leaves Holofernes' head, uh, tent that night, his head is in the purse. And she goes back to being a widow and praying and fasting again. Michal, in 1 Samuel 19. That actress employed by Joab in 2 Samuel 14. That millstone-tossing Shechemite woman who dispatched Abimelech in Judges 9. And that wonderful anonymous female citizen who supervised a much-needed beheading in 2 Samuel 20. These are my heroines. <laughs> 
Now, I've given you some comments on this text as it stands in the Masoretic text. This translation was made from the Masoretic text. The Septuagint has a completely different take on it. And I'm making a point of this because the translation, the alleged translation of the Septuagint in the Orthodox Study Bible, which is no translation of the Septuagint at all, it's simply the Revised Standard Version adjusted here and there for the Septuagint. The Septuagint. It's not a translation of the Septuagint, not a bit, not, doesn't even come close. Um, I know because I translated some of it, and they didn't take my translation, so I know they weren't. The Hebrew text says, that's what I read you tonight. It says, the Hebrew midwives, that's what it says, the Hebrew midwives. Septuagint doesn't say that at all. The Greek Bible, the canonical Bible, uses a different expression. The midwives of the Hebrews. Does that mean the same thing? It might, but not necessarily. Instead of the Hebrew midwives, you've got the midwives of the Hebrews. That's the way it is in the Greek text. Kind of interesting. They might be Egyptians. In fact, the earliest commentary on the text is by the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who's a contemporary of the New Testament. According to Flavius Josephus, they were not Hebrews at all. They were Egyptians. In fact, Josephus goes out of his way to, to illustrate that. These midwives are officials in charge of childbirth. That would be something like the Department of Health and Human Services. Got this picture? Department of Health and Human Services. That, that's what you should think of. Department of Health and Human Services. These two women are in charge of the birth. And they're to enforce this rule about the little boys don't be allowed to live. That's Josephus's interpretation of it. So there you've got quite a different picture, don't you? This is the first instance where there's an attempted genocide against the Hebrews. And you've got two Gentile women siding against their government. That's, that's a very, very different approach to the, to the story. Okay. You know there's a, at the Vad Yashem in Jerusalem, there's a special place, a plaque, more than that, it's a garden, for all of the, uh, what they call the righteous Gentiles. And those are the ones who saved Jews during the time of the Nazi genocide. And, the, and at Yad Yashem, which is the, the, the Holocaust Museum, in, in Jerusalem, I've been there several times. Uh, they have a special garden, trees planted for the for the uh, the the, the uh, Gentiles who put their lives in danger to resist their own government. I think probably there should be two more trees that are placed there for Shifra and Pua. Um, and when next time next time Netanyahu uh, calls me, I'm going to make that suggestion to him. Some rabbinic commentaries 
including Josephus, have a different take on Pharaoh's instruction to slay the sons. They take the text in a very different direction. Josephus does this at length, and Rashi does it in the uh, 11th century. Rashi is Shlomo Yichaki, the major, the major rabbi of the Middle Ages, lived in the north of France. I've been reading Rashi for years. I have his, I have his text in Hebrew. Uh, I purchased it at a Jewish bookstore maybe 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. We wouldn't leave home without it. It's only five volumes. Rashi refers to tradition, which is also in Josephus, that Pharaoh's astrologers had predicted the birth of a deliverer of the Hebrews. Now, that's not the biblical text. The reason, according to these sources, these rabbinic sources, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the little boys in order to get that one little boy who would deliver them. If you think about it, there's a, there's a bit of, uh, there's, a, there's an underlying, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, it's an underlying Egyptian myth in this matter. Remember, there's a solar myth in, in, in Egyptian mythology about uh, the birth of Horus. That the uh, Seth is the name of the of the name of the snake in the mythology, and he's standing by so that when his mother should give birth to Horus, he could devour him. Okay, but his mother sprouts wings, and she flies away into the desert and escapes. Escapes the the the, uh, the, the Seth, who's the who's the snake. It's the, it's the equivalent of Pytho in Greek, isn't it? Clearly, you see the Pythonic mist in there as well. You know, uh, which is kind of interesting that she sprouts these wings and flies away into the desert. Remember the twelfth chapter of Revelation. Okay. The snake is waiting for the woman to bear the male child, so he can devour him when he's born. It was given to the woman two wings to fly away to the. By the way. Accordingly, in this tradition, Pharaoh proposed to slay all the little boys to make sure of killing the one potential deliverer in his infancy. Now, that's an interesting approach to the story. It makes more explicit a parallel with Matthew 2.16, where the Magi show up, and they say to this usurping king, remember, Herod is an Edomian, He's not a Jew. Okay. They come to these, these, these people from the east. Okay. They, come to, they come to this non-Jewish king and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews where we have seen his star in the east <laughs> and we've come to adore him? Got that, got that picture? I think everybody remembers that. Okay. What does Herod do? Kills off all the little boys in the Bethlehem and the suburbs in order to get the one. 
kills off all the little boys, since the star's been there for two years, kills all the little boys two years old and younger. So we're starting to get in the, in the Exodus story, we're starting to get some preparation for the New Testament mystery. This, redemp- this salvation, this redemption takes taking place in Egypt, which is a land of the land of idolatry. Egypt is preeminently the land of the idols. Israel's down there, and they're delivered. Referring to that later on, the prophet Hosea says, on the voice of God, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? Out of Egypt I have called my son. The son, in this case, is Jesus the Lord. Amen. Now, I know you're all wondering what's going to happen to poor Moses. You'll have to come back Saturday to find out. The sermon is already written. And all I can say is, you'll be satisfied with the outcome. God save, O Lord, to keep us this night without sin.